Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Check Down Charlie's podcast. I'm your co-host, Theo, and as always, I'm with my co-host, Eric. How's it going, buddy? I'm doing really well, Theo. Thanks for asking. You know, just chilling. Again, Scottish sun blaring in. It's 8 o'clock, 8 p.m., and it looks like it's noon out there. It's absolutely beautiful until the moment that you have to go to bed, and then it can get a little distracting. Last uh, last episode, we talked about this, actually, before we started the podcast, and you'd mentioned that, like, in Scotland, it gets dark to, like, what? It stays light until about, like, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, it's about 10, 1030 um, in June when we are now recording this June of 2022, year of our Lord, 2022. In the winter, it's the opposite of that. So we'll get that in Canada as well, where the sun will go down maybe about 4, 430. But in the middle of winter here, it can probably go down maybe about 3, 330, depending on oh the day. Oh, my God. So, That's yeah. so stressful. <laughs> you got to take advantage of the sun while you still got it, man. That's all That's all I, uh, That's what I figured out after living here for, for four years. But anyway. It's essentially Canada, just but with more extremes, right? Yeah, exactly. Cool. But the, the weather's not quite as extreme as in Toronto, of course. But... Uh, you know, the sun is nothing compared to the sunshine that you get in South Florida, particularly Miami, the home of the dolphins. And we were talking about the dolphins before, weren't we, Theo? Yes, we were. The last time we, we talked to you guys, we were midway through the 1972 season, the acclaimed undefeated Miami Dolphins. Indeed. Yeah. So the 1972 Dolphins where it's such a huge topic, it honestly deserves multiple episodes. So that's what we're going to do for you guys today. But before we get started, I did want to say that there is a disclaimer. We will be mentioning the Washington football team by name in this episode and may have mentioned it in the past. We do not condone the use of any racist language and we acknowledge the fact that the name is racist, offensive, and unacceptable. Any mention of the name, the Washington football team name, is purely historical. We are unequivocal in our condemnation of the name. Please do not take this as tacit approval of the name itself. Yeah, we just felt like we needed to put in the disclaimer. You know, they just changed the name as of like three years ago, and mm -hmm. we grew up with the previous name. So common sense tells you that uh, occasionally we might, with a slip of a tongue, mention uh, the R word. Yep. Exactly. I just wanted to make sure that we weren't offending anybody. And just because we knew the name previously doesn't mean that we can't move forward and improve as people. So we're not here to talk about Washington specifically. We are here to talk about the Miami Dolphins. So in 1972, with a so-called geriatric QB and a bunch of no names on defense, the Dolphins tight-knit squad kept ticking along. Kick, Zonka, Morris and the no-name defense helped to shoulder the burden, while Earl Morrill was calm and poised under center, throwing to Paul Warfield, among others, and keeping the offense moving despite his limited mobility. Morrill and Shula's familiarity from their old days with the Baltimore Colts shone through as the Dolphins just kept winning. At 8-0, the media started to call out the fact that the Dolphins could achieve something that had never been achieved in the NFL an undefeated season. Don Shula, 
did his best to play off the speculation, making sure his team was prepared for each individual matchup as it came along. Quote, if we were 16-1 and and that loss had been a Super Bowl loss, that season would have been a failure for us, Shula said retrospectively. Shula would zero in on every detail in practice and during games, initially rubbing his players the wrong way. Larry Zonka recalled, we once beat the Patriots 52 to nothing, and he even had corrections in that game. His attention to detail had a psychological impact as well. It pissed you off. But don't you see? The whole mechanism is a way to keep you focused. The victory in week nine sealed Shula's 100th win in just his 10th year as a head coach. After the victory, Shula was given the game ball. Larry Little said to him, we know it's not the one you want. Shula replied, you know the one I want. It was around that point that the media noticed that the Dolphins could be on the verge of something special. Shula, ever the pragmatist and stoic leader, had this to say to the media, quote, we don't feel any pressure. Our goal is to win the world championship. If during the course of the year, things like an unbeaten record fit in, fine. The Dolphins couldn't help but attract the attention of Richard Nixon, once again, who sent a telegram to Shula. Quote, heartiest congratulations on victory number 100. You've done something no other coach in professional football has ever accomplished. 100 victories in your first 10 years. And the Dolphins' record this year is nothing less than sensational. This new milestone is convincing proof of your superior coaching ability. And therefore, I will do my very best to resist suggesting any more plays should you get through the playoffs and into the Super Bowl again. So I don't know if you remember Richard Nixon suggesting plays before the Dallas game in 71. Now he's saying, you know what? Better leave it to the pros. Yeah, how noble of Nixon, eh? Like decided this time around, you know what? I'll leave it to the professionals. Yeah, I mean, judging by how the U.S. did in Vietnam, he's probably not a good field general either. So we'll let, uh, <laughs> let Shula call the plays on that one. Week 10 brought with it another clash with Broadway Joe Namath. This matchup must have meant something extra to Earl Morrill, who aside from having his chance at revenge for Super Bowl three, had his fair share of beef with Namath over the years. According to Freeman, Namath quipped to the media when Morrill replaced Unitas in 1969 that there were now at least three quarterbacks in the AFL that were better than the NFL MVP. Among those was Namath's backup with the Jets at the time, Babe Perilli. For his part, Morrill had been critical of Namath's well-known womanizing and party lifestyle, saying that he wouldn't want his son to be like Joe Namath. The tension between the two signal callers was made obvious when before the game, everyone shook hands apart from Namath and Morrill. When Namath refused the handshake, Morrill chuckled to himself and prepared for the game. The star of the game itself ended up being safety Dick Anderson, who intercepted a pass from Namath and recovered another fumble en route to a 28-24 victory. With the win, the Dolphins clinched the AFC East title at 10-0, and Morrill would have his revenge against his rival. At 10-0, the players started to joke that they should consider losing a game or two on purpose to take some of the pressure off of themselves. This is also when the media started to ask questions of Shula, who was characteristically cautious in his response. Bill Brocker asked him, how badly do you want to have an unbeaten season? Shula had this to say, it would be nice later on to look back on the Super Bowl title in an unbeaten year as well, but it's not important enough for us to risk any of our players who need to rest from an injury. He goes on, let me tell you something about unbeaten teams. 
We were undefeated at Baltimore in 1967. We were 11-0-2, and our last game of the year was against the Rams out in L.A. They were 10-1-2. One of our two ties was the game against them in Baltimore. So if they won that one, we both had the same record, and they would have the edge on us in points scored in our two games, so they'd go to the playoffs. Well, they completely dominated us. The fearsome foursome dropped Unitas seven times. It taught me something about undefeated teams. We were undefeated right up to the last game, and we lost everything. An experience like that teaches you what is meaningful. Championships are meaningful. The Dolphins racked up victories number 11 and 12 against the Patriots and the Rams, respectively. Against the New York Giants, Larry Zonko would be bottled up for 30 yards on nine carries. So Kick and Mercury took over, combining for 167 yards on the ground. At 13-0, Shula was asked about losing a game on purpose to lessen the pressure on an undefeated season. This was his response. I just can't buy that attitude. I don't think there's anything you ever gain by losing. I go along with Jack Nicholas. He once said, do you know what breeds winning? Winning breeds winning. The Finns would go 14-0 and finish the regular season by blanking Shula's former team, the Baltimore Colts. In two games against the Colts that season, the Dolphins' defense did not surrender a point, winning by a combined score of 39 to nothing. The no-name defense would pitch three shutouts, which is the second most since the AFL-NFL merger. They intercepted 26 passes on the season, with five picks by standout safety Jake Scott. The Dolphins only allowed 18 touchdowns in 14 games in 1972. How amazing is that stat, Athea? 18 touchdowns in 14 games. It's by definition total football, like complete football, where mm -hmm. all three phases are, are sort of pitching in, and there isn't one glaring weakness. Mm -hmm. I just love how in one game against the New York Giants, Zonka's not playing his best, but they have two options in the wings waiting to produce. Yeah, absolutely. It's that offensive Hydra theory from the first episode, right? You cut off one head and three more will grow back in its place, right? That's the essence of team sports right there. Shula, ever the pragmatist, would be proud, but in the immortal words of Kobe Bryant, job's not done. Shula would add after going 14-0, we're delighted to have accomplished what no other NFL team has done, but now we've got to make it 17-0 for it to mean something. They would also finish the season with two 1,000-yard rushers in Mercury Morris and Larry Zonka, a first in NFL history. The Dolphins averaged over 210 yards per game on the ground while holding their opponents to just over 110. First on the playoff docket was a matchup against the Cleveland Browns. The matchup was against a team that had many ties to the Dolphins. Don Shula began his playing career with the Browns and learned much of his own coaching style from his eponymous leader, Paul Brown, who we'll talk about in grave detail much later. Like not specifically this season, but in consecutive seasons when we uncover other teams like the Browns. We'll get to it for sure. For sure. Another anxious former Brown was Paul Warfield, who had been traded from Cleveland to the Dolphins just a few years earlier. Not only was he looking to prove his old team wrong, he was also cautious when speaking to the media, recalling when the Browns beat Shula's Colts in 1964, blanking them in the NFL championship game 27 to nothing, despite being heavy underdogs. Browns owner Art Wendell knew what kind of challenge his team was up against and joked with the media before the game, I just hope we make it through the national anthem. 
The no-name defense would be the unsung heroes of this contest, intercepting three passes from Mike Phipps, who was the man that Cleveland drafted with the pick that they got from the Dolphins in exchange for Paul Warfield. And the defense also blocked a field goal. Larry Zonka was again the main focus of the Browns' defense, who held him to only 19 yards on eight carries. This is when others such as Morris, Warfield, and Kick were relied on to push Miami to victory. The offensive Hydra kept growing heads. Jim Kick would go on to become a big part of the team's end-of-season surge, quelling the speculation surrounding his playing time. Kick would explain in an earlier quote after the Giants' victory in Week 13, Shula says he does it by feel, and I've learned to trust his instincts. In fact, this is one of the times I sensed he was going to send me in. We were backed up to the 10-yard line, and I felt I could do something if I got in. I had this definite feeling, and darned if Shula wasn't grabbing me and telling me to go. Despite trailing in the fourth, the Dolphins would go 80 yards in seven plays. Kick would punctuate the drive by scoring the game-winning touchdown in their first playoff victory of 1972. The first person who ran out onto the field to hug him when he scored? Mercury Morris. A Doug Swift interception sealed the game for Miami. And after the game, Nick Bonaconti shared an insight into the Dolphins' mindset. Quote, It may sound stupid, but we needed a game like this. Now we know anything can happen. Next up for Miami was a matchup in the AFC Championship game against Terry Bradshaw, Mean Joe Green, and the infamous Steel Curtain, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Although the Dolphins were undefeated, home field advantage in the playoffs rotated by division in 1972, meaning that Miami would have to travel to Pittsburgh to have a chance to play in the Super Bowl. Although the game took place on January 8th, it was unseasonably warm in Pittsburgh on that day. According to Freeman, a group of Steelers fans used a small private plane to drop leaflets around the Dolphins Hotel. The leaflets said this, this leaflet will guarantee safe passage out of the town to any member of the Miami Dolphins. Surrender now and enjoy life with your loved ones rather than face destruction on the field of battle at Three Rivers Stadium. Unfortunately for fans of the Steel Curtain, it was so windy on that day that most of the leaflets ended up missing their target, blowing all over Pittsburgh. I just want to touch on one thing. Mm -hmm. Doesn't the home field advantage thing seem kind of odd for you? Super odd. And I think this is probably why they got rid of this rule, because why the hell would an undefeated team have to travel to another team's stadium to play a playoff game? Like it makes absolutely no sense at all. And this is just like a minor detail that is sort of glossed over. But the fact that it was unseasonably warm in Pittsburgh on January 8th, Mm -hmm. It's sort of like a blessing in the sky because like I know one of the heavy criticisms of the Dolphins going undefeated during the regular season had been their week schedule and mm -hmm. I'm not there to necessarily judge that based on the fact that I can't attest to un like knowing what the strength of the teams were in the 70s but let's just say hypothetically had it been a regular winter in Pittsburgh that day it would have changed the outcome of the playoffs at that point. Definitely, man. Think back to the first game of the 1971 season where they're playing against Kansas City in Arrowhead Stadium, and it's so hot that, you know, the ink is melting off onto Shula's shirt. Like, that's what they're used to playing in Miami. They're used to going out into the scorching sun. Even in today's NFL, a lot of teams from 
warmer areas, whether this is merited or not, I don't know if there's any studies saying this, but hot weather teams sometimes tend to struggle in cold weather or dome teams, for example. So it's definitely an underrated aspect of every game is, is the weather. So they lucked out by having warmer weather in Pittsburgh for sure. Yeah, to bring it back to the home field advantage thing, had it been under current circumstances, them playing in Miami is an advantage in itself because it's so hot. And the Steelers are accustomed to playing winter football, especially later in the schedule. And to go from like colder temperatures to unseasonable warmth in January, it also works the other way. Like it does gas you, you know, especially the humidity in Miami. Those are other factors to think about. Absolutely, man. Around that time, an L-1011 plane was reported to have crashed in the Florida Everglades. Manny Fernandez's wife was a flight attendant who worked for that same airline. On the morning of one of the most important games of his career, Manny Fernandez had assumed that his wife had perished in that crash as he tried contacting her multiple times to no avail. A distraught Fernandez tried one more time to phone his home when his wife picked up. As it turns out, she just so happened to have swapped shifts with one of her colleagues and had not been on the flight that crashed. Even better news was that her colleague ended up surviving the crash as well. And with that scare out of the way, Fernandez and the Dolphins were back to focusing on their heavyweight bout with the Steelers. That's just a crazy story, especially like right before a super important game. And this is during the age of no Twitter, no internet, no, you know, nothing. just word of mouth if they happen to catch it on a broadcast, which they probably didn't have as much information back then readily available. It's just like psychologically, it probably really messed Fernandez up. And having that relief set in right before you're about to play a game probably was an adrenaline surge on its own. I mean, I hope never to have that initial feeling of thinking that something that horrible has happened, especially professionally, before doing something so important in your career to have, you know, that kind of thing weighing on you would be absolutely horrible, but ended up working out for Fernandez, of course, just another way of, of saying that, you know, destiny might've been on the side of this Miami Dolphins team. For sure. So in the days leading up to the game, Steelers coach Chuck Knoll, who was also a defensive coordinator under Shula in Baltimore, was asked about Earl Morrill's performance in relief of Greasy. When asked, who he would rather face, he said the following. I'd like to see all three quarterbacks, but mostly I'd like to see Greasy because that would mean they'd be behind when he came in. Terry Bradshaw was asked how he was feeling prior to the game. Even with the flu, it's been a good week for me. I got all my learning down and I'm throwing the ball well. I've been in high spirits all week. Before San Diego and Oakland, and now again, I've had this feeling. It's kind of like ESP and it's that we can't lose. Sound familiar, Eric? Sounds a lot like Joe Namath to me. You know what I love about the 70s? They had these just eccentric personalities that sort of like stood out and it was probably great for the game at the time because they could market these guys. Yeah. If you want to go deep on it, like the 70s is when the NFL lore starts to kick in, right? That's when you get the undefeated season. That's when you get the steel curtain. That's when you get the Raiders of the 70s. That's when the NFL starts to become the media empire that it is. That's where the storylines are created is in more in the 70s, I would say. Yeah. And just uh, referencing what we had mentioned earlier, 
the contrast between Earl Morrill and Joe Namath. It's the old school versus the new cosmopolitan quarterback in New York. Yep. And as much as some people might not like it, like the NFL is probably jumping on this. Absolutely, man. Throughout the course of my research, the owner of the Jets at the time, I believe his name was Sonny Werblin, he made sure to bring Joe Namath with him everywhere he went in New York. And he said, you say whatever you want and make it controversial because we need to sell tickets. We need your name up in headlights, basically. So it's all it was all part of the plan to build the media empire in New York. Sort of reminds me of Dana White and Conor McGregor. Yeah. And their relationship. You know, as much as Conor McGregor has dipped in terms of quality over the past few years, like he's still a focus in the UFC because he just brings eyeballs. I was actually going to make that same comparison, believe it or not. Conor McGregor, nobody really cares about what he does in the ring. It's all about him because of his personality, right? So it is interesting, though, that going back to Namath's previous comments, he goes, my backup QB in the AFL is better than Earl Morrill, who had won NFL MVP before Super Bowl three. They dominated the entire NFL, and you're going to go and say your backup is better than Earl Morrill? Like, clearly you're just saying that to troll, right? Yeah, exactly. He's just, he's trying to play the heel. Yeah, exactly. Well, it just goes to show the same dynamics that exist in sports rivalries today, 50 years later, existed back then. So the formula is the same. It's just the players that are different. It might be a little bit more nuanced today, yeah. but it's essentially the same. Yeah, exactly. The Steelers were riding high after being the beneficiaries of the immaculate reception in a playoff victory against the Raiders the week prior. The momentum proved to be key in the early going as they seemed to have the Dolphins' number in the first half. The offense was sputtering as Morrill, Warfield, and the backfield trio just couldn't seem to get things going. It was 7 to nothing when the Dolphins were setting up to punt the ball back to the Steelers. This is when punter Larry Seipel came in clutch for the Dolphins and provided the spark that the offense required. Seipel had bounced around Miami's roster during the late 60s, playing running back, wide receiver, and some special teams. Quoting Seipel, he said, I just don't feel like I was a great athlete. I was in the right situation at the right time and was capable of lasting a long time because I could play a wide receiver or running back or tight end or defensive back, fill in here and there in practice, plus do the punting. I think that's what kept me around. As assistant coach Howard Schnellenberger many times said, jack of all trades, master of none. Seipel and the coaching staff had noticed that the Gunners, which are the Steelers defenders assigned to guard the sidelines and to block would-be tacklers on a punt, were turning their backs on the punter prematurely. With the green light from the coaching staff, Seipel took matters into his own hands on that fourth down play, faking the punt and scrambling forward for a first down. This would eventually lead to the Dolphins' first score of the game. With the score knotted up at seven going into halftime, it was time for the Dolphins' ace in the hole. Enter stage left, Bob Greasy. The Dolphins' hope and savior had been practicing in full heading into the game and was ready to suit up. Up to this point, Shula stuck by the old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Clearly, after the Dolphins' struggles in the first half, 
Shula saw the need to fix those things. He decided that Greasy would take over for Earl Morrill in the second half. Shula called this one, one of the toughest decisions I have ever had to make in my coaching career. As a consummate professional, Morrill would respond, coach, I don't agree with you, but I respect your decision. If you need me, I'll be ready. That quote alone justifies the 85,000 they needed to pay him after claiming him off waivers. Cause that's just total culture move. Morrill's a, a football guy through and through. Absolutely. What an absolute gamer, man. I think of him as Mike Ehrmantraut from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. You know what I mean? Like a yeah, rough the... old man that's like, you paid me to do a job. I did it. And now I'm done. You know, like you can trust him to get it done right. And then he'll just hand it off to someone else. Like totally calculated, you know, poise. Those are tough human beings to come across. Absolutely, man. Reflecting back on it, Shula said the following, quote, Sure, yes, it was a risk making that change. If it blew up in my face, I'd have been explaining it for years. It would have been the Super Bowl with the Jets all over again, end quote. Some say that it was Shula's reluctance to pull Earl Morrill in favor of a hobbled Johnny Unitas in Super Bowl III against the Jets that cost them that game. Paul Warfield said on the replacement, quote, Don Shula had to make the decision that great leaders have to make. And at halftime, he told Earl, I appreciate everything you've done to this point. I'm going to make a decision to go with Bob in the second half. It was short. It was sweet. And it was to the point. You like how he doesn't even have to justify his actions. He just explains it clearly and, and delivers the message. Mm-hmm. I find that like a lot of great leaders are like this, where they deliver their message and then just goes without saying, you just act on it. Yeah, that's it. It shows you the trust that they had in him to do the right thing. I mean, they're undefeated up to this point, but thanks to his decisions, obviously they're the ones playing the game, but he's the one orchestrating it, right? He's coordinating everything. So if he makes a decision, you know, he has the the clout, the cachet to say, this is how it's going to be. And it is what it is. So the decision to switch quarterbacks paid off almost immediately for Miami. Greasy would shake off the rust quickly. He and Warfield connected on a downfield pass for 52 yards that ignited the stagnant offense. Jim Kick would again be a key cog in the machine, scoring two touchdowns to cap off two drives that would combine to last 15 minutes. Jake Scott would temporarily knock Terry Bradshaw out of the game with a huge hit, and by the time he came back, it was too late for the Steelers to salvage a victory. One of the more underrated players in the game was Larry Little, who had to block Mean Joe Green one-on-one for the entire game. Green who was a dominant defensive tackle of the 1970s, was extremely complimentary of the Dolphins after speaking to reporters following the loss. Quote, They ran the ball at me, and I'd say they did a pretty good job. When you look at the films, you'll see me flat on my back an awful lot. I wasn't really surprised, but it did prove that it can be done. I saw a Mercury Morris quoted in the paper earlier in the week saying that when he lived in Pittsburgh, he did a lot of running from the cops. I have to admit, he runs pretty well. I wasn't effective at all. I wasn't a factor at all. If I could have played a better ball game, it might have been different. Miami is a lot better ball club than I thought. Films have a way of deceiving you. They didn't look as good as they were. They showed us they were a lot better than we thought they were. And Larry Zonka had another way of putting it. Quote, it was two things. First, the Steelers were really cocky. They thought they were going to kill us. You could tell from some of the things they were saying before the game, 
on the field, how we had no shot against them. The other thing, the big thing, is that we outsmarted them. We took that game from them because we were smarter. Player by player, they could probably jump higher, lift more weight. But we took that game because we were smarter and a better team. Keeping it professional as always, Earl Morrow had this to say. We needed points on the board and Bob Greasy got them for us. I'm not unhappy about the second half. I came down here as a backup quarterback and I know what my role is. After a hard-fought battle in the second half, the Dolphins would leave Three River Stadium victorious by a score of 21-17. to The Dolphins broke the record of the 1948 Cleveland Browns of the All-American Football Conference. The only team that stood between them and football immortality was Washington. As another championship game loomed in the distance, the media narrative of Shula not being able to win the big game reared its ugly head. Despite being undefeated and on the verge of a feat that few teams in professional sports have even come close to, Washington was favored to win the game against the Dolphins. The NFL was still seen as superior to the AFL, even a few years after the merger. Jimmy the Greek Snyder, who was the preeminent odds maker in football at the time, had Washington favored because the Dolphins are from the AFL. Snyder wasn't the only person who shared the air of superiority, with some writers proclaiming a margin of victory for Washington as large as 21 points. One particular article was so derogatory towards Miami that offensive line coach Monty Clark brought it to the locker room as pregame motivation. It was written by Jim Murray of the LA Times, and it is quoted and undefeated. Quote, Ladies and gentlemen, we bring you today direct from a record-breaking engagement in the Orange Bowl in Miami, a team that needs an introduction. 40 of the world's least famous performers, the intruders in the Super Bowl, that funny little team from that funny little conference, the ones with the mahi-mahis on their helmets, the psst, what'd you say their names were again, kids? What are these fishes doing in the Super Bowl? What nerve? I mean, these aren't the Kansas City Chiefs or the Oakland Raiders. Where's Joe Namath for crying out loud? Who are these guys? Who asked them? It's a good thing they got their names on their uniforms, but that's not much help. What's a zonka, daddy? The sound a hammer makes hitting a railroad tie? What kind of a kick is that? A place kick? A drop kick? An onside kick? An offside kick? What do you do with a Mercury Morris? Put it in a thermometer? Is Greasy a proper name or a hair tonic? What is this? The Super Bowl or Amateur Night? End quote. So, literally this guy's just making fun of the Dolphins who went undefeated. And the guy's like, who are these guys? Why isn't Joe Namath here? Like, you can just sense that nobody took them seriously. It's kind of interesting that even, let's say what, it's six years after the merger, the AFL teams don't command the same respect as the NFL teams, mm -hmm. with the exception of maybe, you know, the Jets like Joe Namath, because they had already gone there and, and won a Super Bowl, even the Kansas City Chiefs. But it's like the rest of the league is still not quite there. I find it interesting because it's been six years and they've already started combining the draft. You know, it's like they're pulling together from the same group of players. It's not like the AFL and the NFL have gone their separate ways and they only play each other in the Super Bowl at this point. They're like mm -hmm. a fully merged league past the 70s. Yeah. And there's still this idea that the AFL is is inferior even though this team is about to complete sports history and this guy's sitting there 
before the Super Bowl making fun of them. It's just absolutely ridiculous to me. Obviously, it's easy to dunk on somebody 50 years later, but again, just goes to show what people's attitudes were. Not only did Miami have to contend with Washington on the field, but they also had to contend with the legendary mind games of Washington's coach, George Allen. Listeners of the GM Shuffle podcast will recognize George Allen as the father of Bruce Allen, who Lombardi refers to as the punter. George Allen was known to go to incredible lengths to glean any advantage possible. When he was the coach of the LA Rams, the Dallas Cowboys noticed a suspicious vehicle parked outside of their practice facility. Cowboys staffers were instructed to run the plates and found later that the car was registered to a Ram scout. When they complained to Commissioner Pete Rozelle, he laughed it off and refused to take action on the issue. Incidentally, Rozelle worked in the front office of the LA Rams before becoming NFL commissioner. So we'll let you come up with your own conclusions on that one. That's sort of funny. It sort of uh, justifies Al Davis's anger, who for many years was constantly at battle with the league office and Pete Rozelle. Yeah, exactly. It all ties in together. And of course, we'll talk more about Al Davis later. George Allen was even rumored to have hired a woman to push a stroller on the sidewalk by practice facilities, except instead of a baby, there would be a little person on the inside listening and taking notes. This just goes to show the Spygate has always been a thing in sports and always will be. I think it's, it's par for the course. It's part of the competition. It's funny that you mentioned Spygate because I'm actually reading Seth Wickersham's book, It's Better to Be Feared, mm-hmm. and he details Spygate, and the commissioner actually calls Mike Shanahan. He details how Belichick cheated and recorded defensive signals, mm-hmm. and Shanahan's first response was, damn it, I should have thought of that. <laughs> so as interesting as this is, I feel like it's part of the the subculture in the NFL. And that's just great. Like hiring a little person to play a baby and just take notes. That's you could have written a better storyline. Yeah. It honestly is something out of a comedy sketch, but I'm thinking even across sports, like the Astros stealing signals, you know, by banging on the trash can in baseball. I think there's a certain school of people that would say, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, you know, you're always going to be pushing for that competitive advantage. And George Allen was, was no different in that regard. Whether he was right or wrong to do that, again, we'll leave that up to you guys. It almost seems like they get a thrill out of going the distance with these schemes because they seem quite zany. Like It seems like so much effort to go and hire a little person to play a baby, to role play as a baby in order to steal signals. Like There must be more effective ways, but it's just, you know, kind of quirky and people are probably, they're probably just patting themselves on the back thinking that they're the genius in doing that. There is a level of creativity in it all. And like, again, he was driven to be very successful and was a successful coach in the NFL. So clearly there was some skill there. But yeah, honestly, like I said, it just sounds like something out of a out of a comedy sketch, to be honest. Like, can you imagine? Berzani, with that in mind, it's no surprise that Shula's paranoia got the best of him in preparation for the Super Bowl. He was convinced that Washington coach George Allen would send spies to Dolphins practices to gather as much information as possible. After moving the practice field to a nearby high school, he would mandate that large tarps would be put on the fences surrounding the practice field. Every little kid that would come around looking for autographs would be treated with the utmost suspicion. 
When Shula was asked if he was filming practice, he said, no, George is already doing that. Allen would employ his own safety measures, making sure his players stayed across the highway from the main hotel to keep away from the media and distractions. George Allen was also the first NFL coach to hire a full-time security man, earning him the nickname Double O. That is definitely something I'd like to research in more detail because security personnel is a big deal for most NFL teams, especially during the draft process. They look through every single little detail when it comes to evaluating players. And most NFL teams hire like former FBI agents, former cops to really do the deep digging. So it totally would make sense that that culture of practicing that would stem from George Allen hiring a full-time security man. You think he's implementing this stuff now? You would definitely want to implement it once football becomes a billion-dollar industry. So in a lot of ways, George Allen's actions are looking towards the future. They're a sign of the future more so than him being stuck in the past in a way. If I was him, though, wouldn't you just like want to screw around with Shula and not do anything just to keep this guy paranoid? Right. Like I would send my kids just to go get autographs and like with no intentions of cheating just to play around with them. Yeah. Well, every moment that he's not thinking about the game plan is a win, right? So it's a competitive advantage, him, right? Exactly. If you can distract him, that's half the battle right there. Allen would share a little bit of his own mindset before the big game with the media. Quote, the thing that bothers me most about Miami is they execute so well that they're not impressive. They're like a baseball team with six hitters hitting singles and doubles. He would go on to say, to win this game, I'd let you stick a knife in me and draw my blood. Allen was a lot stricter than Shula with his team. While Shula and the Dolphins enjoyed a relatively relaxed atmosphere, Allen apparently set up a $1,000 fine for any players who broke curfew. He complained to the media that this is the first time in over 20 years that he had missed a team meeting. An anonymous player actually stated afterward that they should have left him in Washington. Shula would make no bones about who his quarterback would be for the big game, naming Bob Greasy the starter as soon as possible. He would explain, you put the team at ease when you make the decision quickly and forcefully. The team can focus on football in the Super Bowl instead of who will be the quarterback. Shula said to the media at the time, you don't fool around with men, the stature of Greasy and Earl. I'm always prepared for the second guess. Every situation is different. I'm not the coach at San Francisco or Dallas. I'm the coach at Miami, and this is the right way for us to go. Moore was brought here to back up Bob. That's the way we started out this season, and that's the way it will go into the Super Bowl. Media week is pretty standard for any year before the Super Bowl. The players gather in a central location and are asked a variety of questions about themselves or the big game in order to help build anticipation for the upcoming matchup. Some players enjoy it more than others, but two players with a particular distaste for it in 1972 were Manny Fernandez and Nick Buonaconti. Fernandez described it as like going to the dentist every day to have the same tooth felt. I've got my act down pretty good, said Buonaconti. When they keep saying I'm the key man on defense, I'll tell them that if that was true, I ought to be making 500 Gs like Namath. The media was particularly hard on Buonaconti for the way that the Cowboys had beaten the Dolphins in the previous Super Bowl. He had been blamed for falling for a lot of the Cowboys' misdirection runs, which led to big gains on the ground. One reporter even called him a non-hero of Super Bowl VI. Quote, that's great, he would say. 
I'm the only non-hero on a 40-man squad. Bob Greasy had a lot to prove and was asked a lot about his thoughts on the big game. Quote, I don't have any hang-ups about being a loser in the last Super Bowl. I only recall a loss as long as it takes to learn why we lost it. The Super Bowl is a game. That's all it is. Except if you win this one, you win the world championship. I get psyched up for all the games. I get very much up for the Super Bowl. And I get very much up when we play Buffalo. And the layoff I had, that's an asset. I'm stronger because I was out eight weeks. It's a very long season. Last year in the Super Bowl, I was tired. This year, my arm is stronger because I was rested. He goes on to say, They say you learn something from every game. I think what you learn in the Super Bowl is how to pace yourself through the two weeks. You're a little bit smarter the second time you go through it. Last year, we were told what it was going to be like, but until you experience it, it's a little bit different. Reporters then asked him how he felt being on the sidelines during the majority of the season. Quote, How would you feel if you broke both your hands in an automobile accident and you were in the hospital and couldn't type? And while you were in the hospital, your newspaper was named the best newspaper in the world. Would you feel like you were a part of it? With Greasy installed again as the starter, the Dolphins had a clear goal in mind. Dominate the ball and play stout defense. In contrast to Greasy's cool, calm, and collected style was Washington quarterback Billy Kilmer, whose nickname from teammates was Ol' Whiskey. While Greasy had more of a consistent style, Kilmer could be more of a hot and cold quarterback. When he heated up, he could torch a defense, but if he was cold, he could give them the game. Dolphins cornerback Lloyd Mumford expressed his eagerness to face Kilmer. Quote, I like the way he throws the ball up. When he was with New Orleans, I picked one off for a touchdown and almost had a couple more. I almost had one off him this preseason. He doesn't have that much zip, but he tries to throw anyway, even if the receivers are covered. End quote. Washington also boasted 1972 league MVP Larry Brown on their squad. He was a four-time pro bowler in his career and was the first Washington player to run for a thousand yards in a season. He was particularly known for his cutback runs that would lead to explosive plays, and some media members thought that Larry Brown would be perfect to exploit the same weakness that Miami had shown against Dallas, misdirection runs. Before the Super Bowl, an old nemesis would pop into the frame once again. The ever-petty Colts owner, Carol Rosenblum. He took another opportunity to disparage his former coach to the media before the clash, saying that Shula would never win the big game. Again. Rosenblum would employ a scorched earth strategy in his tirade, adding that having notorious cheaters in the Super Bowl like Allen and Shula was a blemish and an embarrassment to the sport. Maybe he knew something we don't but I gamble that he was just bitter about being shut out by Shula during the season. Shula would go so far as to complain to Roselle, who didn't want to rock the boat ahead of the biggest match of the year, and instead just shared his sympathies with the coach. Man, this guy does not know the definition of slowing your roll. Like, he just wants to be involved like when he doesn't need to be. Yeah, and the guy's spouting off about everybody now. Like He's talking about Shula, he's talking about Allen... Remember that whole story about 1967, how the Rams beat the Colts on the last day of the season and all that? George Allen was the coach of the Rams on that day. So he's got an axe to grind with Allen, who ruined his perfect season. He's got an axe to grind with Shula, who lost that game against Allen. 
you know, so he's got beef with everybody. But at the same time, like, sit down, man. You lost 39 to nothing on the season to Shula, and now you're still talking smack? You're still talking shit? I'm going to say, you're still talking shit? Like, sit down, man. Yeah, I know. This reminds me, we should definitely do a pod in the future about, like, ranking the worst owners. Oh, my God. In professional football. You know, I wonder if this guy's, like, the 70s equivalent of Daniel Snyder. Maybe. Maybe. Because I was doing some reading about him in my research with Don Shula, and he seems, for as much as he does love to make a petty comment in the media, he does seem like a very interesting guy in his own right. So maybe when we cover the Colts, we'll go more in depth into Carol Rosenblum. But yeah, suffice it to say, he probably didn't know when to keep his mouth shut. Yeah, which is more in the Jerry Jones vein of things, because like Daniel Snyder is quite private about many things. It's just he's done other things, which I will not mention in this podcast, (laughs) that make him hated among NFL fans. It'll be definitely something interesting to research going forward. Absolutely. The players were clearly aware that they were on the verge of history and understood the task at hand. Doug Swift would say, quote, we need this one. We've got to have it. We've gone 16 and 0, and if we lose this one, people are going to remember us as the biggest bunch of hot air in the world. End quote. Don Shula would put things more bluntly, calling the season an instant failure if Miami failed to secure a victory. Sonker explains the mindset going into the game. Quote, the feeling going into the game was, we are not losing. No way in hell we're losing. It was a universal feeling that went across every man on our team. I can honestly say that wasn't the case against Dallas, but against the Redskins, we weren't awestruck. We were basically Super Bowl veterans. We were angry, vengeful. We wanted our pound of flesh, and the Redskins just happened to be in the way. This is a quote from the Miami News. The game is going to affect Miami's position on the planet either way. If they lose, they will be bums who trundled along undefeated through a cream puff schedule. If they win, they may see headlines similar to the one in New York after Super Bowl VI. He as in Dynasty. Thanks for listening to the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlie's on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlie's on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.